0: You're about to listen to an episode where we talk about hunting. So you might be interested in my free guide on how to get started in deer hunting in Ireland. To get it, go to deerhunting.ie or click on the link in the show notes. From this guide, you will learn how to get a deer hunting license, obtain a firearm certificate, and get permission to hunt deer on a chosen piece of land. Everything is explained in simple language and in easy to follow steps. Get my free guide on how to get started in deer hunting in Ireland. Simply go to deerhunting.ie or click on the link in the show notes. This is episode 164. It is December and many of you might be thinking about buying Christmas presents. I'm not a big fan of buying stuff, mainly because a lot of that you know, ends up in a landfill or in a garbage bin in a fairly short order. certainly after two or three years. So I always prefer and encourage you to spend money on experiences, not on items. However, there's one type of items, one class of items that I think it's worth buying. And these are books. And so today I am bringing you an interview with a book author, his name is Brandt Macduff and the book is titled The Shotgun Conservationist. Why environmentalists should love hunting. And I gotta tell you that there's a lot of similarities uh, in my story, how I got into hunting and how Brandt get into hunting. And I, I felt like we have very similar thoughts about many things related to hunting and then not only to hunting so it was a very enjoyable conversation for me so in this episode we talk about a little bit about anti-hunters but not much but mainly about communication with non-hunting audiences and that includes photos that we're posting on social media and otherwise we talked about how it is to figure out all the things related to hunting on your own if you're not born into hunting And then how that creates that drive to share that knowledge with others. We also talk about the fact that there's no such thing as non-consumptive outdoor recreation. And, you know, like uh, mountain biking or skiing creates way bigger environmental impact than hunting. In most cases, anyway. And yet, a lot of environmentalists or just people who are into the environment and wildlife have no problem with skiing or mountain biking, but they hate hunters. So that is an uh, interesting observation. We also talk about how hunting changes one's relation with death. And kind of from there, we went into eating in an ethical way. And not only eating meat, but in general. Eating in an ethical way, what does it mean? And uh, you know, how it ties to death of an animals and ultimately our own inevitable demise. And I got to say that even though Brandt lives in the US and his book is in the realities of uh, hunting in the United States, the topics we discuss today are universal. They're not in the US context, they're very much universal, which only proves the point that hunting is very much universal to all human beings, regardless where they are. Now, before I let you enjoy this episode of the podcast, just want to follow up on the previous episode, 163, where i talked about the european union's plans or consultations on lowering protection status of wolves that is a very big very emotive subject and i felt like i couldn't just speak with one person one expert to give the full picture of it so i spoke not with one but with five experts and obviously um i have like a five full episodes of the podcast, so essentially like a work, equivalent work of five episodes went into this one. But I want to publish the full versions of the interviews with each individual guest, but I am not going to release them publicly. And I know what you're thinking, and let me tell you, these episodes won't be available publicly neither this year, nor next year, nor ever. To get access to them and be notified when they're available, you need to register your interest. And there's a link in the description of the show. So go in there and register your interest. I will notify you once those episodes are available. It's going to be around January time. And that will be your opportunity to access and hear those episodes. So exclusive access, uh, exclusive episodes, only available for people who want to uh, listen to them. That's it for this introduction. And now, without any further delay, Why environmentalists should love hunting with Brandt Macduff. Brandt. Welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thank you very much for having me. I'm I'm really excited to be here. It's a great show. Oh, thank you, thank you. And you know, before we go any further, uh, shout outs to Sue Tidwell, uh, yeah. our friends who put us together. And um, you know, Sue... episode
1: one twenty one. Check it out.
0: Yeah, exactly, exactly. Sue was on a on a podcast, and then we kind of like uh, keep in touch and. Uh, you are a fellow writer, so I guess this is how you guys got, get
1: uh, get to know each other. I I love Sue. She is so sweet. She's just one of the kindest people. and she did uh, the amount of work she's had to do. I mean, writing my book was a lot of work, but I did I did have some help. Uh, from my publishing house, and Sue has had to do all of that work herself. I don't know how she did, and she's still, I mean, she's trying to teach me how to use TikTok, and like she's posting to Instagram more than I am. She's so much more on her game than I am that I'm constantly learning from Sue and in awe of her, but... Uh, if you haven't listened to her podcast or checked out her book, I can't recommend it enough. Cries of the Savannah suited well, uh, episode 121.
0: Thank you. Thank you. You're already like uh, advertising my episode, so <laughs> so it's fantastic. And folks, like people who listen to the podcast in general, you already know the drill. The links are in the description of the show. So to uh, brand to your book uh, titled Shotgun Conservationist, that's by the way, that's the title of your book. Um and we get into the, to that in more detail. Uh, so yeah, folks, uh, go go and to check the description of the show. There's a lot of stuff there to click and subscribe and read and buy and stuff and so on. Okay, I just want to start with a with a point that really um, and in a way sparked uh, Sue's interest and and thinking, like, like, oh, we, you guys should talk because you obviously as we said you wrote the book titled shotgun conservationist it's about hunting and how hunting connects with conservation and much more than that but you started as an anti-hunter and you even uh it was like a part of 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 the book where you said that anti-hunting was core of your values so i wanted to start from that point you know how how it happened that you've been anti hunter in the first place because most people are just, you know, they're not anti hunters and they're not pro hunters. They're just like, they just are, right? This is just like, oh, whatever. So, how it happened that you started to, that you became anti hunter? And then, what was the process? What was the transition to, 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 you know, get you into the hunting world?
1: I should clarify that I was never, I mean, now when I think of anti hunters, I think of people who are very active. Um, either in, you know, on, on Facebook or something or, or, um, doing something to, uh, to block, uh, block hunting or stop hunting or protesting or something like that. I was definitely an anti-hunter, but I was a little kid. So it was more, it was less that, uh, anti-hunting was, a, so much of a core for me, but it was more that I was an animal lover and that was the core for me. So as a little kid, it was uh, impossible to think you could square being an animal lover and a hunter at the same time. That uh, for for a little kid that it just doesn't make any sense. And what changed for me over time was continuing to be and animal lover who wanted to be more involved and continue my education because when you're a kid the stuff that interests you about animals is a lot of the the like fast facts fun facts i I still love those things but it's you know how how good is a bear's sense of smell how fast does a cheetah run and stuff like that that's the stuff that interests you about animals how big is a blue whale's heart And I still love those things, Um, but as I got older, my interests kind of deepened and I wanted to know more, not just about the animals, but what was necessary to keep the animals around. How did the animals interact with the rest of their environment? Um, So whales are really interesting but maybe krill are kind of boring but as you get older maybe the krill become a little bit more interesting to you because you're more interested in the whole cycle rather than just kind of the 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 superstars um of the animal kingdom so what turned me into a hunter was being an animal lover and keeping animals and an interest in animals in my life that turned into an interest in ecology and therefore an interest in conservation. And so they were all building on themselves over time. And I really, uh, you know, in the book, I, I say I was, I'm, a, I'm envious. I'm very envious of the lifelong hunter. Because I think of all how much, well, first of all, just how much better I'd be at it and uh, how many more adventures I would have had by now. But at the same time, I, I I it's very important to me that I built those credentials of my own will and volition of uh, education and investigation rather than just sort of, oh, well, I don't know. I was kind of born into a hunting family, so I just kind of did it. So so that that's been very important for me is coming to it on my own and using those sort of animal loving anti-hunting instincts to do the work and have that guide me
0: like before we start recording, we were talking like how many like uh, similar uh, things and similar thoughts and and the history we have uh, like even though we you know we, we're living on the different continents but this is a this is another one that you that you mentioned like figuring everything out on your own is kind of like you have this this once you're done it's like oh I, I actually i've done something that is not easy for 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 many people and, and there's a lot of people who would like to start doing this and they just don't know where to start really um no not and and you know like you wrote the book you wrote the entire book I wrote a like a guide how to become a hunter which is basically you know like a last chapter of your book or, or one of the last chapters of your book so this is function of the guide but we you know it feels like we also had this this at least i can speak for myself this drive to share that with with other people saying like hey i've done I, i did it like this is how this is how it's done and in case you're wondering about you know getting your own meat and you know hunting and so on and you were not born into hunting this is the guide this is how you do it uh, obviously, mine is very specific to Ireland. Yours specific to to United States. But I I feel that you had this this the same kind of like a drive in you to share that knowledge.
1: Yeah, and I feel like that is. I mean, that's certainly not just me. That's you. That's Sue. That's um, I mean, nearly everyone I've heard on your show ha- has they have such a similar story. People who aren't necessarily. Ha- I mean, a- Amy Dickman. Um, people who aren't. Hunters or aren't interested in hunting, they they want to be a part of the natural world rather than separate from it. And you just can't help but learn things along the way and then want to share those things. Because it is certainly if you there's no one out there saying, like, ugh, I hate nature, let's pave it all. Um, Even if they don't really care about the outdoors, I can't think of anyone who's like, let's get rid of this. Um, So what I find so interesting about hunting and this sort of relationship to the outdoors is that people, I think they are interested. They're very interested in it. They just don't know that they are and they forget that it's a thing. Um, because it becomes so easy to just go to the grocery store and pick something up, and even if it's not meat, to still be so disassociated from where it comes from and the cost that it has. Because it truly doesn't matter what you eat, it absolutely has an environmental cost, unless you are only growing and eating things in your backyard, and you know, so, um. So when I realized that for myself and became more involved, absolutely, I wanted to shout it from the rooftops uh, because I knew people I know, they felt the same way. They just hadn't gotten to the like, oh, guess I better take up deer hunting, you know. So um, but yeah, I think I think it's a very common story among people who especially come to hunting later in life.
0: And I want to like just now now pivot to the uh, again uh, part of your book where you describe your first hunt, and and there's a, this is this is a great story. So people who will you know shortly buy the book okay, they can read. I'm not gonna reveal the details of the story, but you're sa- you're saying like when the moment when the deer was down, and you were approaching that that dead deer, it felt natural. Uh, and, you know, and again, again, this is this is my also experience the first time when my first animal that I shot, which was a feral goat. And, you know, in the moment, I didn't actually thought ab- about anything. I was so much in the zone. Um, and, but after I was done, you know, gutting the animal and growlocking and all that, it was like, same what you're saying, like, oh, that felt so natural. It was like a normal thing. Yeah? Like it, it's, it, 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 you approach this with a little apprehension. It's like, oh, I'm going to be, you know, like a dead animal. And then you're going to put your hands in the guts. And it's like, oh, my God. How... And then it turns out, I was like, oh, yeah, it actually felt like we were designed to do that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I try to bring up in the book, I never want to be the only one saying something. So I try to bring in as many examples of from other people, authors. um, And that's also a story that I heard over and over again from different people who, like me, would be people who you really wouldn't expect to have that same feeling. Uh, One of the people I talk about is author Tim Ferriss, and he's not really known as an outdoorsy guy. He wrote this book, The Four-Hour Workweek, And then, and it's all about like business and planning your professional life and stuff like that. And then he's written another, like, you know, the four hour body and the four hour chef or um, but he had the same experience where he, uh, he hated hunters growing up and finally took it upon himself to go hunting for the first time. And then had this sort of like, whoa, wow feeling when he gutted his first deer, um, that, just as you say, he felt like he was designed for it. Um, the uh, Another author, uh, Lily Raff McCullough, she wrote a book called Call of the Mild. And it's it's her story about uh, becoming a hunter um, as well. And she has a very similar story. So I think that is something that, that I've seen. I didn't really pay attention to, but that since that happened to me, that I've seen that story come up for other people as well. And I was sure that I would just start bawling or that I wouldn't be able to take the shot. And so I kept surprising myself that I was able to take the shot and that I I didn't start crying when I walked up to the deer. I think I was which was more of a combination of, I think, shock and just awe. And then the the task at hand is so so you you really have to take care of business. So i didn't know i didn't i don't think i i took as much of the moment i was like okay what's what's next i have to keep doing this i have to make sure you know i was so nervous about doing everything correctly that i was like i, I can't uh i can't sit here and navel gaze for two hours over like existence and my place in the world and everything so it all sort of came rushing to me much later um that that day but yeah, in the moment, it was much easier than I had expected it to be. Now, to be fair, I had worked in a butcher shop. I was teaching people taxidermy. So I'm not squeamish. Um, but certainly I understood the, the difference between, oh, well, this deer was alive just a few minutes ago, and I'm I'm the one who killed it. So that sort of weight uh, is very different. Yeah. I,
0: I remember, uh, I think it was in a. Uh, Steve Rinella's book where he said like once you put the hands into the still warm cavity of an animal then you know it's a serious business so that's that's sort of this, um, this concept let's go back to your book and you talk about a lot of interesting things, one of them is uh, which ties again to some of the episodes that we had uh, here that you mentioned, there's no such thing as non-consumptive outdoor recreation and I, I love that part because you kind of approach this from a little bit of a different angle. But the actual place where you arrived was exactly the same that there are people who, you know, they're, they're sometimes actively don't dislike hunters and because they destroying, they, you know, killing the animals and so on. And they're hikers and they're kayakers and so on. And even, I think it was one of, on one of the episodes and one of my guests was actively asking mountaineering group or some someone that said, like, what is your impact on the environment? And they basically said, none, zero. And it's like, that couldn't be further from the truth.
1: Yeah, it's, I mean, when you think about, you know, people talk about trophy hunting, but I mean, what is climbing Mount Everest? Um, the impacts that that has had on the landscape, and I love stories of climbing Mount Everest and and uh, stories of alpine adventure and things like that. But it it does take a toll on the environment, and it is consumptive. That's of course a very extreme example, which is why I, in the book I I talk I do talk about uh, kayaking and hiking and uh, mountain biking and skiing. Mountain biking is kind of the it, it's it's seen as non-consumptive, but it is it's incredibly damaging to landscapes. Uh, creating those trails, It's not just the creation of the trail, but the use of the trail disrupts animal um, animal movements. And if you have mountain biking all summer and skiing all winter, Well, that's a landscape that is now dominated by people in a way that pushes wildlife elsewhere. And it's easy to think, okay, well, the hunter goes into the landscape and maybe shoots an elk or a mule deer. But the whole point of the hunter is to move in and out of that landscape completely unnoticed uh, without having any impact on the landscape whatsoever. So maybe you get a a mule deer or an elk. Maybe you don't. But either way, the impact is zero or negative because even if you do shoot a a deer or an elk, those are animals that have already been accounted for by US Fish and Wildlife. You are spending a lot of money to tag one of those animals. It is part of a, a built system to create value and funding for conservation. There is absolutely zero of that in stuff like um, uh, mountain biking or skiing. Now, i I love to ski. I haven't been skiing in years. Uh, I love kayaking. I was a whitewater rafting guide. Um, So I love these other outdoor activities too. But people are they're very unaware of the 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 costs, and so it's very easy to show an image, a picture of a hunter there with a dead animal, and you see that. But when people think of like a uh, like a cool YouTube video of someone with like a GoPro on their helmet going down a um, going down a really cool mountain bike path, something like that you don't really see those costs. You're like, oh, cool, look at this. And you you don't see any of those negative costs. Whereas if you look at the picture of the hunter, you see what you think is a negative cost, and you definitely do not see any of the positive impact. So it's a very lopsided, uh, they're very lopsided images, uh, both the real images and the the images that people conjure up in their heads. And that's, that's one of the bigger problems that, that faces hunting, conservation, outdoor recreation is what is seen by people and what is not seen by people. And the fact that you would have to stop and say, hmm, what are the impacts of this? And go do a bunch of research. People don't do that. Definitely.
0: And, you know, like... Uh, but you know, obviously, you're you're very much in a, embedded in the United States reality of hunting, and which you know we said many times on the podcast is probably you know the best wildlife management system in the world. But even in in other countries, even if you might assume that there's no positive impact of hunting, even though that's not true as well, because it, you know almost everywhere, at least in Europe. Um, the hunting is a part of a wildlife management system and probably everywhere in the world at this point, the hunting is incredibly uh, regulated in terms of what, how, when, and so on and so on, uh, which is then feeds into a bigger picture of the wildlife management and conservation. But like I said, you see this, what's going, neg- you, you don't think, like I said, m- mountain bike, park, uh, all the disturbance, but then you, you have also things like roads that needs to be built, car parks that needs to be built. And, you know, we had a, we, I, I had a guest on a podcast uh, who worked in the British, um, you know, governmental organizations who are responsible for national parks and so on. And in his book and in, in, in this conversation, he's like, yeah, those national parks are really like a frozen frame of the ecosystem. At one point, and we maintain that this way so that nature cannot develop, it can't go anywhere. It's just like this, you know, snapshot. This is how it was, this is the vegetation was there, these are the animals who were there. And around that, you build shops and car parks and toilets and all those things. And all of a sudden, it's like, is this is this is like a this is this this is not wild. It's not natural at all. It's just like a, you know, like just a one-step separated from a zoo or something like that so so that's a that's a that's a that's a good point and i think it's important to talk
1: about it there's another wonderful um author named emma maris and i do talk about her in the in the book uh but she says it takes a lot of work to make these places look untouched
0: yes since since we are for for the for the benefits of the of our listeners since we recommending the the author i was mentioning whose name is ian carter um, to podcasts, you they, you know you can you can search and, and and find that thing. Yeah, so so that's that's a, that's one thing we covered. Uh, listen, another thing that you you talk about, which is interesting, is the attitude of hunters to death. And this is something I I spoke a lot about. You know, understanding how dying is part of a life cycle is part part of life. You know, I also have like a like a little theory of mine, which maybe not theory of mine at all, but you know, like with age hunters are hunting less. And sometimes, you know, this these stories where it's like, oh, I'm just taking that like, rifle is taking me for a walk in the woods. You know, and, and you you do you know, and I'm thinking like, yeah, because maybe you're more aware of your own mortality and you kind of you know so this is th- that was very interesting uh, a passage or a chapter uh, in, in in your book. I'm 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 curious to hear your um, your views on this firsthand.
1: Yeah, I I mean I think how people relate to death is fascinating, um, just as its own topic. Um, you see the way different death-related cultural practices around the world. I find those fascinating. How in America and in in most places these days, death is sort of like not talked about or swept under the rug or um, seen. Yeah, denial and denial and, and taboo, which is the craziest part to me that you can you can have something that is so unchangeable and inevitable seen as a taboo. But I think that is how it's treated in a lot of places by a lot of people and um i just find that very interesting and because my number one interest is animals i just wanted to sort of explore that from from that lens and say well how do people how do people relate to the death of animals and how do people who deal more with the death of animals relate to death period and um, I worked for a museum called the uh, Morbid Anatomy Library and Museum in Brooklyn and it's still around. Um, they have a wonderful blog and very interesting speakers all the time. Definitely check them out. So they talk about relationships to death all the time and first of all, being a meat eater, I had to accept some level of death and then and that is... And of course, like we were just talking about, it's just such a more visible understanding of death. I'm eating a piece of meat that came from an animal that was once alive. Now I see just as much death in like a vegan soybean patty, but other it's more difficult for for other people to see that because they're not seeing the death of a farm animal, but they're also not seeing the death of wild animals, uh, either the wild animals that tried to move back into that landscape after it was taken away from them or the animals that got shredded up by the um, machinery or the animals that were pushed out because of the immense num- uh, amount of cropland required to... so no matter what you see that death, uh, it comes a little bit more clearly if you're eating meat. So that was the first thing I saw and that I had to really think about as a kid was the fact that I was eating meat. And then wanting to eat meat in the most ethical, environmentally friendly way I could kept leading me up this, uh, this ladder of what I found to be more environmentally or animal friendly, but it also, and a lot of that was, okay, What? how responsible am I for death, these deaths? And if I'm going to be responsible either way, no matter what I eat, how much can I put that on myself? And so working at the butcher shop became a, a first step and then saying, okay, well, that's just breaking down pieces of meat, I have to kill something if I really want to see what that's like and maybe I I can't handle it. and then then okay, then I can maybe stop eating meat. Um, but then still having that, okay, well, I'm still that's still not a bloodless meal. And then coming to that realization that there's no such thing as a bloodless meal the exact same way, there's no such thing as non-consumptive. So just trying to look at those activities, Objectively look at my diet objectively and say, "How much responsibility can I take?" While also understanding that it's just tough to be a person in the world. And yeah, absolutely, I'm going to go to In and Out Burger and uh, get a burger when I'm in, you know, uh, yeah, a fast fast food burger at In and Out when I'm in California, or go to a restaurant and order whatever's on the menu without doing a full research on where it came from but you'd go crazy if you did that so i tried to take as as much responsibility as i possibly could and having some acceptance of death that lets you i think take those um take that in a a larger picture rather than saying oh well this isn't meat therefore it's not death but saying okay death is going to happen how do i want how do i want to relate to that in my own life
0: you know and i think that also it's it's uh it leads to that understanding that like you said it is it is part of life and you know maybe even it helps you look at your own eventual death with more acceptance kind of like an understanding Its place, because I think that what with where we started this conversation, that the you know in the in the Western society, especially, we have a lot of like a denial or just like well, don't talk about it, is is comes from kind of like not knowing where that piece of the puzzle fits into everything else, and then when you when you out there in nature and you see things happening, and you know everybody probably even if they're a hiker they found a a skull of an animal on the trail or just like oh there was a you know and it and it becomes like more of a like yeah it it is a part of what's going on and then it helps you to get this piece of puzzling as like put it in like okay it it fits you know from top it feeds to my food and from the bottom it feeds fits, fits into with a ecosystem and here's my own self in here and it is like it helps you have a bigger picture of
1: it yeah it's yeah it's interesting because i think a lot of people would look at the hunter as maybe the a crueler person but the reason i got into hunting is because suffering is so much more important to me than death Uh, because as we've said death is natural death is a part of life There is nothing you can do. There is no way you can live that doesn't incorporate the death of other things. That is just how the cycle works. So if I couldn't just stop death everywhere, uh, then what I wanted to do was minimize suffering. And maybe it sounds counterintuitive to people, but I really found... Hunting to be an answer to that is ethical choices. Now that you know, you can make a mistake uh, when you take a shot, and that's pretty gut wrenching. Um, there are, uh, it's harder to make a mistake with a, a bolt gun, but because there was no way out of death. And ignoring it or pretend, pretending it didn't exist or pretending that I had nothing to do with the death of something else, I wanted to take responsibility for it. And I wanted my the way death interacts with my life, the way it does everyone, I wanted to be more cogent of that, more responsible for for my actions.
0: Isn't earlier on your your touch on another uh, subject which is kind of like one of the hot topics and well, <laughs> I'm not quite reconciled that myself uh, in, in, in my mind which is uh, hunting photos and you know posting um, photos uh, with it. Like you said, people who don't know what they're looking at they might have a negative reaction and I believe that hunters and hunting in general is in a lot of trouble and, and worse situation than they otherwise would be because of um some or a lot of those photos, right? But then on the other hand, is like why would I hide something as if this is something illegal or shameful? It is not. So why why and this is like a kind of like a hard tightrope to walk you know where where so you you spoke uh you you wrote a lot in, in your book about it but curious of your of your views here it's, your...
1: it's just impossible to find a, a a good clear answer to it it's just one of the nastiest little uh hornet's nest for any discussion about hunting and hunters because yeah on the one side you really want People to be open and upfront and sharing um, about this thing that is so important to them, uh, important to the way we relate to nature, and having a a visibility around these people who are so connected to their environment and their food sources um, and their conservation activities. And then at the same time, you realize that leaves the door open for all the people who are disrespectful and do just want to show off and do just want to. A lot of times it feels to me like they don't even care about the the grip. We call these photos grip and grins. They don't even care about the grip and grin photo. They're showing what they're more interest, interested in is pissing off the people who don't like Grip and Grins. So there are people like that too. You can tell there's a bit of an air of like, yeah, this is what I do, and screw you. And so what do you do? Do you tell all the nice, respectful people who are, you know, spending years writing and crying and thinking over this uh this complicated topic? Do you tell them, hey, don't post photos anymore? And then we are only left with the people who Specifically, want to piss people off. So, you do need sort of that a way to combat that. But it is, and it is because there is no one size fits all, there is sort of a tricky tightrope of okay, well, how do you introduce your own audiences to it? You, you can't just say, here's the way to do it. You say, okay, well, here, here are my Instagram followers. Um, I don't have a big Follower base—it's mostly my friends and then people who have found me through the through the book. And I don't solely post hunting content; it's just like my personal Instagram. And but I've never posted a picture of my deer. And I I think about it like, at what point will I? um, At what you know next hunt would I? uh, How do you slowly bring people on board and then show them that? It's okay to look at this and it's okay to be proud of what you have accomplished as a hunter if you do have a successful hunt. And I try to the most specific series I go through in the book is like, well what's what what's the order of the photos? and what photos are you showing on on Instagram? For example, so if someone just posted a photo of the dinner they made, you know that happens all the time. People post photos of the food they make. And if you say, okay, well, this is this is venison from a deer I shot, people might think about it a little differently. If the only picture you have is you and the deer you shot, now maybe they'll just think that, well, that's the end of it. They just shot a deer and they're happy about it and that's it. So how much storytelling are you willing to do? And there's also a part of that that the storytelling is Almost is is so much more difficult. Like if you were hunting in uh, Africa or, or you know away from, if you're in the United States and you see people posting photos from uh, another place, saying, "Okay, well here's the zebra I shot," and that's all you see. Again, maybe you're not seeing like what happens to all the meat. Where did all the money go? Uh, go how is this organized how is this protecting habitat you again you don't see those things it's a very tricky thing
0: yeah i think there's also the aspect of it that it's available to anyone uh, including people who wants to be angry including like the other side of those who are just want to just trigger someone with a picture of a grip and grin and they like those who just go and they want to be upset about some pictures of grip and grin so they actively searching for them but I think that like everybody is available and the grip and grin pictures and all that, that came from, you know, it's, it's as old as hunting or as old as hunt photography, right? So, paint paintings. Yeah, exactly. And, and you were, and you were showing that to people who, you know, who knows you. And even if they don't know the story, they know that you are a good guy. You're a, like animal lover. And they knew that you, you know, you, you, we're saving money for you know two years to go through this bucket list hunt, and this is they know, and all of a sudden, this kind of like an intimate picture is shown to everybody. It's like, now, oh, there it is and 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 I think that this is and I think you said it in the in your book as well that this you 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 need to approach this a little bit like these are like a intimate pictures, and you wouldn't show those pictures just just about to anyone. Would that be the good guiding principle of what to show, what to share on social media in public, or not?
1: Honestly, I don't. I don't know. Um, it does. That is. I think that's a helpful starting point because, yes, you you have to start with your own audience. Um, I live in New York City. Um, a lot of my friends are. Uh, vegetarians or would consider themselves animal lovers, uh, would consider, uh, not consider themselves anti-hunters. But as you said, people who just don't think about it, they're not anti, they're not pro, they're just kind of people who don't think about it. Because why would you? If you're not a hunter, if you're not specifically an anti-hunter, why would you think about it for two seconds? So I share with those people first. And uh, it's funny, a, a friend of mine just went on a camping trip. With her husband and two kids, and they they got fishing licenses. And where they were, um, they didn't need fishing licenses for the for the kids, but they bought them anyway because they liked hearing about in in my book, just talking about the licenses and how do you pay for all this stuff. And um, so they bought a license as just sort of an, an act of conservation donation, even though they didn't need it. Um, I just bought my duck stamp. Uh, last night it's twenty five dollars. I needed to go migratory bird hunting, and that is me paying the U.S. government to to for conservation projects. Um, and so there is so much of that 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 is unseen, and it's it's really difficult to show. You can't show it in a in a photo. There was, I think, um, not long ago, there was a an American football player. I think football, um, an American football player who posted a a photo of him after a successful Alaskan black bear hunt. And he was out in Alaska, he got a black bear, and he was excited and he showed off the photo. He bow hunted for it, and, you know, people lost their minds. That's because, you know, you see all these pictures of him going about his day or him playing football, and then all of a sudden, there he is with this dead Bear and a bear of all things. Everyone loves bears. I love bears. They're my favorite animal. Um, And so people lost their mind because that's all you see is this guy who's really happy with a dead animal, (laughs) you know, they have no context for, okay, do you have any idea what he spent to make that happen Um, and where that money goes and how it perpetuates conservation and how it's managed? And you don't see any of that. And do you so, know how many black bears are in Alaska? Right. Yeah. Um, so it's very inflammatory, and unless you're going to, and I think, and he had a, he had a perfectly fine caption like you know, incredible trip, incredible animal, like beautiful place, you know, stuff like that. He was very excited about it, but he didn't go into because why would you and why should you have to uh, educate the entire world? But you kind of do at this point. So I kind of wished he had said. Here's how much my tag costs. Here's how much my, you know, here's how that you have to kind of give an entire economics and ecology lesson every single time. Almost, you know, like, but almost like you say that this is regulated. I think that this
0: already, uh, you know, puts at ease a lot of people who are upset or uncomfortable. With the picture, right? Because people are uncomfortable, and they reading comments, and they making their minds based on the comments they reading. And quite often, it's like, do you understand that this is not just you go with a rifle and you blast the first thing you lie your eyes on, right? It's very regulated. It's this. It's a season that is from from calendar day to calendar day. That's a season. That's the you need to be very specific what animal, what age is the animal, what sex is he, like all those things. And a lot of people who are very quick to get upset about it, they don't know like how regulated that thing is. But then to your point is like, you would need to like, you literally wrote
1: a book explaining this. (laughs) Yeah, it was, I mean, yeah, it's my book. I really tried to make a, a sort of 101 sampler. So I don't talk about any one topic as much as it should be discussed, but I really wanted to try and touch on as many things as possible um, because it's so easy to be flippant about it and just keep those preconceived notions that you've had since you were a little kid because you've never wanted to or had to do the investigation otherwise. And how could it possibly be other how can you look at a guy sitting there happy with a dead black bear and how could that possibly have any benefit it seems so counterintuitive that you just never would bother looking into it
0: That's that is true How was it what was the reaction of your of your friends when you were kind of like easing them into the idea that you are a hunter Was did you get any like a negative reactions or was it more of a curiosity
1: Um well my friends, uh, I'm very lucky to have just the the most wonderful people in my life. Um, and my friends, they trust me. Um, they know that I care and know more about animals, um, than maybe they're interested in. And so I think there's a lot of trust there immediately. And that's helpful. I have one friend who I think I mention in the book, uh, my friend Shannon. And she's a vegetarian. um, And I think she's still grappling with or suspicious of hunters and hunting. And I'm not sure where she is on that now. I think maybe she gives a pass for some things in the U.S., but is still very suspicious of Africa or international issues. Um, And, you know, I have no problem with people not liking hunting. That is totally fine. The trouble is when you start bad-mouthing it to other people or actively trying to stop it without really knowing more about it, just having that knee-jerk reaction to it. and and then decrying it without really knowing what you're talking about there other than from a purely emotional viewpoint. Um, And that's how most people handle it, is just purely emotional, which is how I was when I was a kid until I wanted to learn more about ecology and conservation, and it kind of happened upon me. But you have to do that work, and no one asks anybody to and it's not really put in front of people. So it's hard to come by.
0: And like you said again uh in, in your book that you know these emotional reactions and and these this has this trickle-down effect to then to politicians and then to policymakers. And then well-meaning animal lovers, for the want of a better term, are starting to influence the the wildlife management policies and, and conservation projects not based on science but based on their emotions and this is where it's really gets really you know bad because then you have like a real you know it's it's not a problem if someone doesn't like hunting and they don't like hunting and it's fine right I, I don't like yellow cars and that's fine too but then when there's enough people, okay, so we go have like an elected official, you know, uh, senator or governor or whatever. You know, uh, every jurisdiction works differently, and and say, like okay, now and politicians want to be elected, right? So if they feel like there is enough audience that they can play to, like, oh, we're gonna stop this, or so we and then people who are like in the no, they're like no, no, what are you doing? But then they don't know any better either. And this is where a real danger is, is it? It's so, this is,
1: yeah, this is the biggest current danger is sort of the infiltration of these anti-science measures coming into wildlife management because wildlife management, ecology, I mean, these are hard sciences and People take them with this emotional lens and without understanding how dangerous that is or that that is what they're doing. I wouldn't say I'm the most politically involved person, but I'm probably a lot more involved than most people if I consider myself and how politically involved I was before I ended up becoming more and more interested in these topics. But especially being here in New York, I mean, I see so many bills come up that people are, you know, just happily passing, yeah, sure, pass this, um, you know, anti-trapping uh, or trophy import or uh, any number of these different wildlife-related laws that they they truly don't understand why they exist or how they work. They're just very sort of easy political wins, especially in, in America, if you're a, a Democrat, and it sort of and it, it does there are a lot of political lines when it comes to hunting and hunting issues that's so difficult to navigate because you think a, a lot of the democratic voters and politicians will think oh well hunting that trapping that kind of stuff that's like a republican thing so we'll just get rid of it <laughs> you know and uh, so it becomes less about the topic and as we become more and more politically divided just who's on what side and so i see these bills come down the pike and what interests me most about hunting and wildlife management in america and abroad is that it is a thing where both parties who are interested in it want the same thing that's what fascinates me because if you think about if you think about another controversial topic like abortion or something like that there, You might see a political divide and there's no, these people do not want the same thing. They don't. But on this issue, when it comes to wildlife conservation, both people want the same thing. So it is, it is unbelievably exhausting to try and explain to people, look, do you want to follow the science or not? Uh, do you want it to work? That's how I came to all of this. I'm a very practical person. I don't really care what the answer is as long as it works. Do I want to keep wild landscapes and wild an- animals around for the future? Yes, absolutely. Oh, hunting works to do that? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, who who am I to judge all of these years of conservation practice and theory that come out supporting this science and these economic systems, they work. So it's just kind of flabbergasting when you have people who work against it without even knowing what they're doing, just having this very superficial understanding of like, oh, well, I like bears. I don't want bears to go away. So obviously we should outlaw bear hunting in New Jersey. And again, it just, it seems so obvious and it just couldn't be further from reality or understanding of the truth. And then um, not listening to the experts on things like that just baffles me. It would be like if we said, okay, you know what? NASA has been plotting all of these courses to Mars. And maybe that's not really fair. Maybe we should just let anybody plot a course to Mars You'd <laughs> never do that. That'd be crazy. <laughs> so, wildlife management, conservation—these are hard sciences. Leave them to the scientists. But people don't see it that way because animals are so emotional to us.
0: I got to qu- ask you this question because this is all this is all good, and but it feels to me like this line. Um, has its pitfalls for for hunters, especially. It it almost feels like we we need to we need an excuse for hunting, for like oh look I I'm hunting because you know you have all these things here and you're gonna be you know paying money for conservation and you know even in in like in Ireland oh we you know we're controlling deer because deer are out of control and they're causing damage and you know all those things. Similar things you see, for example, in Australia with. Um, control are we controlling invasive species and so on, right? And then the government steps in and says, like, okay, we have a choppers and we have a you know machine guns, so we're gonna sort out the problem of invasive species one for all. And then all of a sudden, they're like, oh, hang on a minute. We actually like some of them. You know? And so it is kind of like a question: is like, would you be okay to give up hunting and not hunt at all if all the other boxes are ticked? Or do you think that there is that is that the hunting has a value in itself as a hunting without, you know, separated from all the conservational benefits?
1: Yeah, I think it's an excellent question. the The value that the actual hunting brings to people I find important because it is giving them a reason to be involved in the involved and interested. And care about the nat the natural world, you know the the natural world. Uh, it's all the natural world, but the non human <laughs> the non human leaning world. Um, and that is important because we keep around what we care about. So I like the importance that that puts on the individual and how that imbues um, that level of care and interest if we're just talking about, okay, people, individuals aren't really going to hunt anymore, we're just going to have the government kind of take care of everything. There are places where I would like to see more of that. I talk a little bit about Staten Island, the uh, one of the boroughs in New York City that's just off of where I live. And they have a huge deer population. And they the the government, they're their first choice would have been to have a very controlled cull of a certain population of deer so that the remaining deer could live healthier lives and um, be a, a, a managed population for the amount of space that they have on the Instead, they went with this very expensive, convoluted plan of giving the deer vasectomies. So I heard about it. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. So if, but if, let's say the government was in control of this and you had a controlled call annually think of all the places that meat could go and be incorporated into the local uh the local economy the local people um what if the uh the the staten island public schools were being given fresh local venison that instead of having to buy cheap burger meat from a factory farm far away, it in it would be the most environmentally conscious choice we could make, but pe- because people just don't perceive. And if you heard about, it, I bet, and I say this in the book, but I, I bet if you went if you heard a story about some remote island where, all the school children eat wild game from the island and they, you know, you'd be like, wow, that's cool, you know. Um, but the minute you bring it into like an urban space, it seems weird. Oh, nature is over there. It's not here in our backyard. So there's there's that sort of perception. And then you think about, yeah, I mean, Australia is just a perfect case study for so many things. And I love I love talking about invasives. I think they're fascinating. The way people relate to them is fascinating. My sister is moving to Hawaii, and I cannot wait to go hunting uh, goat and sheep and pig and axis deer. And and in Australia again, it's a, it's a smorgasbord all of the introduced species there. So. I think it's a give and take. I think you have to, first of all, I think because there are so many invasive species and it is really nearly impossible to get rid of them or even manage them to the degree that we really need to manage them. I think you do have to kind of come in with a like a triage of what's most important, which is why I talk so much about cats.
0: Another, another uh, topic that Animal lovers are not really <laughs> exactly. Yeah, they don't.
1: And it's it really is the sort of it is this like gateway to such a difficult conversation. But you can, if we have all of these big invasive species like the the free roaming cattle, different uh, hooved animals in Australia, the pigs that that they're near. I mean, pigs in Texas, they're a near unlimited food source that we could be we could be sourcing from so much more than these farm raised animals that you know people don't like the way they're raised they it's it can be inhumane um and we don't like the environmental cost of those um factory farmed animals and here we have this wild alternative well why don't we we take a break and start eating them down a little bit and okay well the let's, let's give that a a shot. See how well we do. So I think it's just, it's too difficult to implement. People would have to wrap their heads around it. It's such a difficult task. Of course, I wouldn't want to lose my personal opportunity to go hunting these invasive species. But yes, for me, I would be very willing to give up some personal opportunity to see ecosystems thrive. I do think there's a bit of a, a difference in introduced and invasive. It's funny that New Zealand is so they're starting to like freak out about their their tar and their chamois. And the the tar, from what I've read, they're not really having the impact on the the landscape that they they live in areas that, you know, they're like this or that vegetation that they're saying it's a problem for. I'm really not seeing the science to back that up. You see So much more devastation from what the pigs cause or what the Australian possum causes uh, in New Zealand. And yet they're putting all of this big money into the tar. And it's like, well, you have people who are willing to spend a lot of money to come over and hunt the tar. And that's bringing a huge amount of money into your Economy and reducing tar populations at the same time, why don't you focus on your invasive cats or your invasive possum, who are far more damaging to ecosystems? But, you know, the tar, they make a much easier target physically and practically. So you see a lot more of that importance put on those animals, which is kind of wild. And then, you know, Australia, again, the cats. Cats are cute. People have cats as pets. People cannot wrap their heads around culling the the outdoor invasive cat population.
0: Yeah, no, you're right. You, you, you're dead right here. Like tar is relatively easy to eliminate, and it's like a checkbox check. We sorted out tar problem. Yeah, go ahead and sort out of the possum problem. Right. See how well you go with with that checkbox. Yeah, this is uh this is this is fascinating conversation and and, and so many facets. Brad, tell me how do you think the future of hunt- hunting will play out? You know, I think that in the US as much as anywhere else, hunting is under increased pressure. We discussed some of those pressures. We spoke many times about the social license to hunt. We also spoke uh, quite a few times about hunting organizations who are only waking up now to the fact that they need to communicate to non-hunting audiences in order to ensure the future of hunting. And I think that goes, you know, that, you know, European Federation for Hunting and Conservation phase, they actually open a a position uh, that is called like a communication manager for, you know, with non-hunting audiences, something that is in the open. This is what we're doing now. I I had a pleasure to attend a CIC conference when they they also kind of like waking up to these things. Obviously, SCI was uh, there as well. And I see that SCI went a long way from their trigger the anti-hunter campaign to what they're doing now. So they're starting to wake up a little bit to the reality but the pressure is there. So, what do? You, how do you? If you if you could look at the crystal ball, how do you see the future of hunting playing out?
1: Yeah, I mean, it absolutely is a social campaign, and hunters have always been perfectly happy to be off on their own. They're 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 very. Uh, they they like to be out in the woods quietly. They don't you know they're not engaging with. They don't want to engage with social media. They don't want it to. And it's it, it is only to their detriment now. Um there's also, as with anything, you know, there's so much infighting between groups how this should be done, how that should be done. You know, maybe uh maybe Safari Club International thinks backcountry hunters and anglers are too liberal, and maybe backcountry hunters and anglers think Safari Club International is too conservative. And that kind of doesn't matter. You've got to really put uh, you've really got to put those political divides aside, and you've got to say, this is for all of us, and if we don't work together, we're all toast, which I think is difficult. You know, every group wants people to donate to their own group. Um, they Their own group are the most important issues. You know, the this animal wants old-growth forests, but this other animal wants new-growth forests, and this animal wa-. so. Uh, It can be tough to reconcile those things between groups. But unless we start building coalitions between all hunters uh, and all uh, hunting and conservation groups, and unless we start putting better faces forward and just more faces forward, because it definitely is something that you hear about from the anti side so much, so much of what they do. And it's again, it's another kind of sad side effect of this that the anti-hunting groups put so much money into um, campaigning and media and very little actual conservation work. Uh, They do very little. The hunting groups I'm a part of, the uh, hunting groups I, I study and watch they're spending so much of their time and money completing projects, you know, buying land to connect tracks of land for greater migration uh, corridors or uh, protecting stream access or doing this. It's so many real boots on the ground projects, removing barbed wire fencing and that it's always kind of been secondary that they should be talking about this stuff and putting all that stuff forward. Because uh, again, the truth is they're doing the most work and they have the worst reputation, which is shocking. How can that possibly be? So it is absolutely a reputation campaign. And if people knew the truth, I think they would absolutely be on board for it. The majority of people I talk to, they're very curious. They want to listen and they come away with a new perspective. That's it. Um, I've rarely uh, had someone of a really, 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 butt up against me, and maybe I haven't found that audience yet. And you're always going to find the audiences on any extreme are not going to change their mind for anything. But yeah, the the people who generally haven't really thought about this stuff, the the reality of it is so clear and logical that people generally go, oh, okay, interesting. I didn't know that but having that conversation is the difficult part. How do you get this information in front of people when they're not looking for it? Um, a podcast like yours is important because it's it's Tommy's Outdoors. You talk to everybody. It's the outdoors and outdoor world and what's going on, different stories. Most of what I hear, the the a lot of the other really important conversations happening, they're happening on podcasts that are, they just talk about honey 24-7. Who's who is tuning into that other hunters and that's it precisely
0: this is what i'm what i what i say that i i always uh, you know sometimes to my detriment because if you if you look at you know how do you do like a good podcast you have your audience you have your niche but i actually think that this is one of the biggest uh things and you know i'm not doing this for money um this is like a you know uh labor of love or like one of the guests' complicated hobby but the thing is that I, I, I get to present different points of view to audience on, on different sides, which often results with, you know, half of my audience being upset uh, with me with every episode. But then, you know, I always say, like if there is only one person, like one person who says like, oh, I never thought about that, like if my job is done. That was already worthy. And you know, Brad, like you, you, you put a very good point as well, uh, something that is repeated Many times that these things are incredibly complex and complicated to communicate clearly, and you almost you you it's it's almost impossible to condense that into a slogan. And you know, a lot of animal rights group they have a they have a uh, such a success because they for years for decades they have a one slogan clear go vegan, it's simple for 20 years, 30 years, go vegan. Very simple. Now how do you you juxtapose that with like, yeah, but we have uh, this projects and we you know connecting tracts of land and we managing age class of animals and it's like, oh no man, like this is like it, especially in, in in today's media landscape where everything is you know like a one minute or 30 seconds and you swipe up or down or left, it, it, you know, it's like that's way more conducive. It's like, go vegan, simple, right? And this is uh, this is what we're what we're against. But I think, like I said, I see the the good uh, the good signs of of, uh, of of people who should have you know been on the case earlier. You know, it's better late than never. I guess it's uh, it's uh, we, we got to stay positive, uh, Brandt. Is there anything else that uh, you want to talk about? I didn't ask you, or any words of
1: wisdom for our listeners? Um, no, I mean, I would, I would recommend, if if listeners are tuning in for me because you're my friend, or you found out about my book, and then you found out about this podcast, you should really listen to. Uh, some of the other episodes on this show, like we talked about at the top, Sue Tidwell, Amy Dickman, Adam Hart. um, There are so many, if you're interested specifically in hunting and hunting conservation issues and what is, you know, what maybe people thought was bullshit or are suspicious of or whatever, um, just keep, keep looking. Like I, I try to, I try to give a little sampler and introduction to so many studies and authors and, um, conservation styles happening all over the world. But, you know, like you just said, it's a, it's a really big issue that people think is a really small issue. And that's, that's the trickiest part of it. So if you're still suspicious, you know, keep, keep looking, you don't, have to be um convinced but i think people would be if they did the homework so keep listening um but you're putting out a great product and thank you for that
0: thank you thank you i appreciate your kind words uh folks the shotgun conservationist Brand mcduff book is i presume available everywhere where books are available amazon audible yeah um, any specific place other than the description of this show that people may want to also go to
1: to buy the book no, I don't have. Uh, I don't have links to buy my book on my website. Now um, you have. Now you have. It's in the description I of the show. Oh yes, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, they're not. Yeah, I have a link. You can buy it through my website, but that's not. That's not any better than buying it anywhere else.
0: We're gonna put that link as well. We're gonna put all the links uh, in the description of the show. Brand, thank you so much for the conversation. It's been a real pleasure, and uh, thank you.
1: Thank you. Much appreciated. Yeah, take me fishing sometime.
0: Of course. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave me five-star rating on Spotify or Apple Podcast. This is great help for me and for the podcast. And while you're already there, don't forget to subscribe to my newsletter. The link is in the description of the show.